0: Ephesians chapter 3, as we continue our study of the book of Ephesians. For those of you who are just joining us, we're in a year-long study through Ephesians. Today we come to Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am am the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are for your glory. A couple years ago, uh, several years ago now, uh, Billy Crystal did a funny movie called uh, City Slickers. And it was uh, a humorous movie about a man turning 40 and going through a significant midlife crisis, and he goes to a dude ranch to sort of find himself. But in the beginning of the movie, as part of sort of presenting his midlife crisis, he goes to a career day at his son's school, and there he has to talk about what he do, does for a living and try to make it interesting to a bunch of little kids. Uh, the problem is uh, he, he's a marketer for a radio station, and so sort of in his Billy Crystal style, he's trying to explain to the kids what he does. He says, well, I, I, I sell airtime. I i guess i sell air what is that what is selling air it's nothing you know and he starts just you know bemoaning his his job and the kids are you know sitting there like this you know there's just some jobs that are hard to describe to a little kid you know marketing for radio i mean marketing how do you explain that to a kid or let's say you're in uh, finance i mean how do you explain that to a kid i suppose what playing with other people's money uh, something, or maybe nowadays, grief therapy, <laughs> but, but something like that to try to explain to a kid what you do. Here's another one that's hard to explain. Missionary. What, what really is a missionary? And we say, oh yeah, I know what a missionary is. I mean, but really, you think about it. Okay, what is it? It's a guy, he's got a pith helmet, right? Uh, khakis. He's in the jungle somewhere telling people about God, I guess. But, you I mean, really, where do they live? How do they do that? Uh, So we send a missionary over to Poland. We have a missionary in Poland. Where does he live? How how does he go about doing missionary work? So it's kind of vague. You know, it's strange. And I think for many of you, and many of us here, you may have come from a church background where missions was not a major focus of the church. And so it's still kind of fuzzy. I mean, maybe your church did missions, but it was some branch or organization connected to your church and... You're not really sure what they did. It's not like there were missionaries coming and speaking in your church on a regular basis. So missions is, is kind of out there. It's, it's fuzzy for you. And then you come to South Shore Baptist Church, and you're just trying to get used to this strange place. I mean, for crying out loud, we're you know, dunking people underwater, and uh, there's this strange pastor. You know, you know, where'd they dig him up? And that's a whole other story. And then, and then there's missions. Like, what is this? I don't know. Have you, have you ever come in the church by the downstairs entrance? There's a huge board down there with a big map and all of our missionaries on it. Like, what's that all about? Our church uh, raises a, a missions budget every year. It's, it's raised by the congregation by giving pledges every year. And last year we raised $200,000 for missions, which is, you know, a lot of money. But now why would a church go to all that work of raising $200,000 to give to missionaries? What's, what's the point of all that? Or look in your uh, sermon notes for a minute. You'll see a little insert in your bulletin. It says Ephesians 3, 1 to 6. On the front, I listed all of the missionaries we support financially, just our church, not, not the Baptist organization, but our church supports, and where they're, where they're serving and, and the places they are. The exciting thing about this, too, is that a lot of these names, maybe I should have put an asterisk by some of these names, are people who've gone out from our own church. So there's people from our church who've changed careers and gone to the mission field so what's that all about? I mean, why, why missions? And so what I want to do these next several Sundays is think with you about what missions is. Uh, perhaps, if we could put it this way, to develop a theology of missions, an understanding of missions. Uh, and I think it's an exciting opportunity. Uh, look on the second page of your sermon notes. This is where we're going. Kind of a mini-series here. Today I want to ask the question, What is missions? And then next week, we'll look at the question, who is a missionary? What kind of special person does it take? It's got to be some super Christian who goes off and does this. What does it take to be a missionary? And then you'll see we have a missions conference. Uh, This is a, you know, we bring missionaries in, and this is something we do here in our church every year to raise missions awareness. Uh, There'll be... Sunday school hour speakers, there'll be evening service. I just encourage you to take advantage of every opportunity to come and listen to some of our missionaries speak. It'll just open your world up. And that's for two Sundays. And then we come back to why do we do missions? In other words, what's the motivation, what's driving this? And then finally, how we go about missions. And we'll be studying Ephesians chapter 3, because Ephesians chapter 3 is really about missions. It's about God's plan to reach out to the nations. So my hope is that uh, for some of you... At the end of this six-week period, you'll have a really clear understanding of what missions is. You'll be able to articulate it. And if you're new to this church, you'll understand why we're so excited about it. You'll understand that it's not just some program we do, but it's really at the core of what the church is and should be doing. So today we have to start with a question there. It's in the big box. You see that. What is missions? What are we talking about? Uh, what makes missions different from the Peace Corps? What's the difference? What makes dif- uh, missions different from people in the UN airlifting food to a struggling nation or a war-torn country? I mean, there is a difference. There's some overlap, but there's also a difference. What is it? What is it that makes missions missions? Well, let's look to our text. Ephesians 3, 1-6, to which is our text for today. Verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now just remember, when Paul wrote Ephesians, he was in jail. Uh, He was in prison because he had been preaching the gospel. He was arrested. Uh, He probably wrote this from Rome, is, is the best guess, 60 to 62 AD, somewhere in that time frame. He's writing from prison. He's been arrested because of his mission to the Gentiles. And then by mentioning the Gentiles, that kind of launches him onto a tangent. He doesn't pick up his train of thought again until verse 14. Verses 2 to 13 is kind of a tangent, which is how Paul writes. And he goes off on this tangent, and he just talks about his ministry to the Gentiles. He explains it to us. Verse 2, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to man in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So Paul has been given something. God has revealed something to him so that he can tell it to other people. And the thing that's been shown to Paul is called the mystery. And so we have to stop and ask the question, what's he talking about? What is the mystery? And it's important to define this word because... Well, you know, in English, mystery has a lot of different connotations, which isn't exactly what Paul means. Uh, for instance, look at your sermon notes at the bottom of page two. Some things that mystery is not. Maybe we can define mystery by saying what it's not. It's not a whodunit novel. Uh, mystery doesn't, isn't like a, a mystery novel where you try to figure out who, who did the crime. You know, my favorite TV show uh, is CSI. I just, I, I'm addicted to this TV show, not just because it's set, set in a great city, but also because... Uh, it's just a, it's a mystery novel, you know. You're trying to figure out through the whole thing. All right, who done it? And they're using their science to figure it out. You're trying to guess who done it before they tell you who done it. I mean, that's the whole appeal of CSI. Is and plus it's kind of science nerdy. It's it's kind of cool. Um, it's it's who done it. But that's not what Paul's talking about. It's not a who done it, nor is it an X file. That's another way we use the word mystery. You know, a mystery is something kind of spooky and weird. It, it's paranormal activity, and and you can't define it scientifically. It's a mystery. It's mysterious. That's not what Paul means either. Nor does he mean a religious ceremony. Uh, Maybe you've heard uh, the, the mystery of the Eucharist, the mystery of baptism. It's not a religious ceremony that's sort of strange and nebulous. So what is mystery? Mystery is this. It's very simple. Mystery is a secret. That's what a mystery is when Paul uses the word. It's a secret. It's something that... God knows, and we don't know. It's, it's a secret. See, God has a secret plan for the whole universe. He has a secret plan for all time, and he's working it out, though we don't typically know what that secret plan is. Uh, keep your finger there in Ephesians 3 and just flip over back to Ephesians 1, verse 11. Ephesians 1, 11. It says, In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, I don't want to get back into predestination. I mean, we already solved that. Uh, so we, we want to look instead at, at uh, this idea of a plan, that God has an eternal plan. He has a, a plan for all the, the human history, and slowly but surely, God is working out his plan for human history. Now, does that plan always make sense to me? No. No. <laughs> There's a lot of things that happen. I just go, God, are you in control still? How can this be part of your plan? And he's saying, just wait. You'll see. Just wait. And so I wait, and then eventually I do see. Oh, I see how it worked out. So that 10 years after uh, a struggle in my life, I can look and I can see how God was using that for my ultimate good. But you don't know the plan. God has a plan. He just never tells us what it is. It's very frustrating. Read the book of Job. God has a plan. There's a reason for Job's suffering. But did you notice in the book of Job... God never tells Job why he suffered. He just has to accept it on faith. So there's a plan, we just don't often know it. But now God, for one of these rare occasions, has told us the plan. One of these few times in in his workings, he doesn't call us to walk by faith. He tells us the plan. It's the mystery. He says, Paul, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to tell you this exciting thing that I've sort of kept behind my back. In fact, look at verse 5 of chapter 3. The plan which was not made known... The secret wasn't told to former generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So the apostles and prophets have the secret plan. Okay, so what is it? What's the big secret? What is this big thing that God has been sort of keeping behind his back and now he tells Paul and shows him what it is? Well, verse 6 fortunately gives us an answer. This mystery is, the secret is, that through the gospel, the Gentiles, in other words, the nations, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Until the coming of Christ, God worked through one nation Israel. That was his people. And God poured out his love and his mercy and his revelation. He gave his law to one nation, Israel. But with the coming of Christ, something dramatic has happened. God's love has now gone international. Uh, Before the coming of Christ, God's love and tenderness were, were dammed up in Israel. But now the dam has broken, and his love and mercy is flooding the nations. Before the coming of Christ, God just embraced Palestine as his special people, but now his arms are stretching out to, to embrace Americans and uh, Brazilians and uh, Scottish folk and people all over the world. Those arms are reaching out to embrace the nations. It's amazing. This is unprecedented. because Up until this point, until Christ, God worked for a particular nation, but now a great shift has taken place, and God is re- reaching out to all the nations. Um, it's just so amazing. Or maybe look at it this way. What is the most important need that all human beings have? Food, shelter, water, what is it? Is it to pay our mortgage? Is it uh, career needs? You know, What's the most important need we have? Those are all important. But the most important need that any of us have is to be reconciled to God, to be connected to God Because all those other things, food, shelter, clothing, my children, my career, that's all temporary. But how I relate to God affects my eternal destiny. It's the most important need any of us have. It's my most important need. I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God because of my sins. And so I'm asking the question, God, how can I be reconnected to you and be saved? It's the most important question that anyone has in any culture, in any time in human history. And now the answer has come. God is opening up the doors of salvation so that any nation, any Gentile can come in, regardless of what sins I've committed, regardless of what failures I've made in my life, regardless of how selfish I've been, and I've been pretty selfish and continue to be selfish, regardless of uh, my inattentiveness to God, regardless of the fact that I haven't loved my neighbor as myself, Regardless of all that, God has thrown open the doors of salvation to welcome the Gentiles in, of which I am one of them. I mean, it's just staggering. Totally revolutionary. And then not only that, but look at, Paul also tells us how it happens. Okay, so how can I experience this? Look at verse 6. This mystery is that, three key words here, through the gospel. It's through the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel is how excluded Gentiles can come in to fellowship with God's people so that we can become, as it says here, heirs together, members together, sharers together. Now, we should probably define gospel. We define mystery, right? Gospel is another word we should define. It's a word people throw around. You know, they say, oh, it's the gospel truth, or they say, uh, you know, about gospel singing. Look on the back of the sermon notes. Here's three definitions of gospel. The first is by a theologian named A.W. Pink. He's quite a character. He said, The gospel in brief is this. Christ died for sinners. You are a sinner. Believe in Christ, and you shall be saved. I love that. so simple. Or Mount said, The gospel is the joyous proclamation of God's redemptive activity, some theological words there, in Christ Jesus on behalf of men enslaved by sin. Or Louis Burkhoff, the great theologian, said, the preaching of the gospel consists in the presentation and offering of salvation in Christ to sinners, together with an earnest exhortation to accept Christ by faith in order to obtain the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I think pink's my favorite. I don't know which one you like. I think pink's is the one that makes the most sense to me. Christ died for sinners. You are a sinner. Believe in Christ, and you'll be saved. I, I can deal with that. That's straightforward. The gospel is the fact that even though... Uh, I'm separated from God because of my sins. Jesus died on the cross to bridge the gap. The gospel is that even though I have a huge debt of sin that I owe, Jesus Christ has canceled my debt and paid for it on the cross. The gospel is that even though I I am dirty in my sins and unclean before God, Jesus Christ died on the cross to wash away my sins. The gospel is that sinners can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's open invitation to humanity to come back to him by putting their faith in Christ. And the great thing about the gospel is it's just global. God has thrown the doors wide open. Anyone who will put their faith in Christ can be saved, no matter who we are or what we've done. Okay, now let's pull all the shoestrings together and tie them together here, okay? Let's go back to our original question, page two of the sermon notes. What is missions? Let's see if we can tie this all together in case I lost you in the, the thicket somewhere. So I'll regroup around this question. What is missions? Missions is, here's a definition, going into the world to tell the greatest secret in the world in order to meet the world's greatest need. Let's say that one more time. Missions is going into the world to tell the greatest secret in the world in order to meet the world's greatest need. That's missions. It's just telling the secret. I mean, we love to tell secrets. You know, it's great. It's fun to tell a secret. This is it. We're telling the secret. We're telling the world, Christ died for sinners. You can be saved, and we've been saved. It's free. Come and take it. We're going to the world to do that. That's what makes missions different from the Peace Corps, for instance. Uh, Peace Corps, great thing, not knocking it, but it just is what it is. It's, It's bringing humanitarian relief to people who are in need. And humanitarian relief is great. In fact, we have missionaries in our church who go out and do humanitarian relief. They do agricultural work with developing nations. They, they bring medical care to developing nations. But without the gospel, it's not missions. Somewhere in there has to be that message of faith in Christ. That's what is the distinguishing characteristic of missions. You can show the love of Christ by caring for people's physical needs, but if you never tell them about Christ dying for sinners, it's not missions. Missions is that proclamation of, of the gospel to all the nations, going into the world to tell the greatest secret in the world in order to meet the world's greatest need. I was reading an Old Testament passage that made me think of missions. Um, it's not actually about missions, but it's kind of a, a picture or a, an allegory, I don't want to say that, of missions in some way. Look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 7. It's on page 365, if you're using a pew Bible. 2 Kings chapter 7, 365. 2 Kings chapter 7, just to give you background on the story, uh, Samaria, which is the capital of the northern part of Israel, has been besieged by people called the Arameans, Uh, there's some people who live north of Israel, the Arameans have come down, they've, they've swept through Israel, they've conquered, and now they've come to the capital city of Samaria, and they've besieged it. And, of course, what happens in a siege is people start starving. There's no food. That's the whole point of a siege. You try to starve people into submission. And so the people in Samaria are hungry. The Bible tells us the famine inside the city got so bad that a donkey's head sold for two pounds of silver. Now, you you know it's bad when you're interested in eating a donkey's head. I mean, you've got to be hungry. And then to think that you'd pay two pounds of silver for a donkey's head, I mean, these are really lean times. I've never been that hard up that I'd want to eat a donkey's head but that's what it was, a donkey's head sold for two pounds of silver. In fact, the famine got so bad that, that in a couple instances in this story, people started uh, cannibalizing because they just were starving to death. And, you know, this was like the Donner Party or something. They started eating the dead, which is ver- very gruesome. Uh, but then look at verse 3. So that's how, this terrible plight, city is starving. That's the way warfare was done in the ancient world. And then look at chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate, and they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. If we stay here by the city gate, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. This is the only shot we've got. So verse 5, at dusk, they got up, they went to the camp of the Arameans, and when they reached the edge of the camp, Not a man was there, for the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses in a great army, so that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. Hey, donkeys? There's a big market for donkeys, so there you go. Um, And they left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. And the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, and they entered one of the tents. And they ate, and they drank, and they carried away silver, gold, and clothes, and went off and hid them. And then they returned and entered another tent and took some of those things from it and hid them. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace." I mean, to me, that's kind of a a picture of missions. God has done an amazing work of salvation, and we're like those four lepers. We've sort of, we found it, or it's found us, and we find these blessings, we find salvation. God has rescued us, but what are we going to do with it? I mean, it would be wrong to sort of sit on it and keep it for ourselves. We've got to go tell other people about it. It just would be wrong to keep it. As he says here, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. See, so I think sometimes we think of missions or evangelism and we think of it kind of like, like it's condescending. You know, evangelism is going out and sort of wagging your finger at people and telling them, oh, you better turn to the Lord. No, 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 that's not it. As someone has said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's it. It's just four lepers who found the motherlode coming back to everyone else and saying, look, it's over there. Look what God has done. There's a great salvation. Everything you need is over there. We found it. We're not starving anymore. Come on, come on. It's very much beggars telling beggars where to find the bread. And that's, that's what missions is. It's going into the world to tell the greatest secret in the world in order to meet the world's greatest need. So that means that missions starts right here. Because the world starts right here. The world is, is everywhere we go. In fact, it's inside of me. That's where we have to start telling this message. Uh, so what I'm doing right here this morning is, is missions, technically, because I'm telling you the message. I'm, I'm speaking the gospel to you. And uh, the mission field is your children. I think that's your greatest mission field is to tell your children about faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, and, and to tell them of the good news that they can be saved not through any ritual, not by baptism. You know, when we baptize this girl up here, we're not saying that that baptism made her a Christian. You're a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. The baptism just is a public symbol of that. There's no ritual you can do. There's no uh, uh, penance you can do. There's no activity you can do. It's only through faith in Christ. And we need to tell that to our little kids. That's our first mission field. And tell it to the, the kid who shares a locker next to you in high school. That's your mission field. Tell it at work. I was talking to a, um, a guy this week. It's just interesting how God will often do this and b- bring conversations my way that sort of fit into what I'm speaking about. Or maybe that's just because I'm so thinking in terms of the sermon, I start interpreting things that way. Whatever. Uh, but, but I was having lunch with this guy and, and he was telling me about a conversation he had had this past week. Uh, he had done a big presentation for his sales team. And after the presentation, they all went out together and hung out. And a guy came up to him and he said, you know, uh, I was really impressed with your presentation, and he went on to just ooh and ah about the presentation, and he said, you know, there's something about you, you have a peace and a confidence that I don't understand. Where does that come from? (laughs) And so it's kind of an open door, and and he said, well, um, that's from God. That's why I have that peace and confidence. The other guy said, oh, so you're religious, huh? He said, well, I wouldn't call myself religious. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ." And as I trust in Christ, you know, he gives me those things. So if you've seen any of that stuff in me, it's because God is working in my life. I mean, that's missions right there. He's just talking about Christ in a natural way, explaining what difference Christ has made, one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is kind of a thing. And then maybe two weeks down the road, he's going to have another chance to say a little more and explain the gospel story. Or maybe that person who talked to him is going to bump into some other Christian and hear a little bit more. I mean, who knows? what the secret plan of God is for that guy. But we know that our job is to take this message to the nations because that's who it's for. But if missions begins here, it can't end here. It has to be global. Because remember, this message was given for the Gentiles. is given for the nations. And so it has to go out. Uh, There's tribes in Papua New Guinea in the jungles who need to be told the gospel message and, and shown where the bread is. Uh, there are, um, I think, about 10 million people known as the Uyghurs. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Uyghurs. They live in eastern Kazakhstan and northwestern China in the, let's see if I pronounce it right, the Qingjiang province of northwestern China. And there's 10 million people called the Uyghurs. They're a distinct people group. They need to hear about Christ. And I think there's about, I've heard, three or 400 Christians among them now. Because people have gone over there and told, and, and God's news is spreading uh, we support a missionary in northern Togo, her name is Pat Devine, and she works among the Ife people, and she's translating the Bible into the Ife language, and the reason she's doing that is so that the Ife people can have the Apostles' message, and they can take it out, because I, I have a suspicion that the Ife people will be more successful at spreading the gospel in West Africa than an American would, so you get the Bible into their hands. and you, have them do cross-cultural missions to other tribes who are probably a lot closer to them culturally than we would be. And so that's missions. It's, it's just taking, going into the world, taking the greatest secret in the world to meet the greatest need in the world. And so what I hope you see from this, and what I hope I see from this, is that missions defined this way is not peripheral to the church. It is central to the church's identity. And that if a church is not engaged in missions, as we've just talked about, I mean, is it really a biblical church? How can you be a church? Because the church is here because of missions. The reason there's a church here in South Shore Baptist on Main Street in Hingham is because missions brought it here. And we're here because we're Gentiles who've been brought in through the gospel. And now the gospel's in our hands, and we, we need to take it too, both here and abroad. And so missions is central to the church. And my prayer is that as we study missions over the next couple Sundays, we'd not just understand it better, but that, that even some of us who've never heard of missions before, six weeks from now, will have a fire in our bellies for missions. That we'll have a vision for it. In fact, I'm even going to pray that God will call a few of you to go out and be missionaries. So, you know, watch out. I got you on my cross You've got to be careful. He might call me. Ooh. Ooh. Am I ready for that? He might. You never know. Maybe he'll call my wife and she'll say, Jeremy, we're going. And I'll say, okay. Uh, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? God can call anybody to be a missionary, as we'll see next week, because it's by his grace. Look at this great quote at the end of your sermon notes. Charles Spurgeon. Can't ever go wrong with Spurgeon. Look at the bottom of your sermon notes on the back. He said, If sinners will be damned... At least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Boy, I wish I had that kind of zeal. I don't. I want that kind of zeal. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the song that you've placed in our hearts. I thank you, God, that we can sing these worship songs here with such enthusiasm and vigor because you put salvation in our hearts. There's a joy in our hearts. But God, I pray that you would stir up within me an excited zeal to spread this message here and abroad. Lord, give me that same zeal Spurgeon talked about, that that, that desire to do everything I can to share the love of Christ and the gospel message with people. Lord, I pray for this upcoming six weeks of Missions Focus that you would speak to our church. I pray, Lord, that you would change our church. I pray that you'd revolutionize our outlook, that we might not be simply looking inward at ourselves, but that we might be looking at your glory going global and reaching the nations. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's never put their faith in Christ, that they would just hear from you that you love them and that the door is open, that they can put their faith in Christ and be saved. God, I pray that we might fill up this baptismal tank with people confessing their sins and desiring to trust Christ and believe in Him. God, I just pray for your mission globally, that your kingdom would come, that people here in the South Shore, Boston, America, and abroad would hear the good news of Christ. And so, Lord, speak to us, enliven us, quicken our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.